And uh, this morning was no exception. Uh, walking in the, you know, in the dark uh, with some street lights. And, uh, you know, you're half out of it, groggy, still trying to wake up. And, um, yeah, I think the dog was too because we, uh, we came within one step of stepping on a, uh, you know, at 4 o'clock in the morning, all snakes look like anacondas, right? <laughs> so we, uh, I mean, my foot is up over that snake, about to step on it, when I realize that's not a stick, that's, uh, that's not a piece of a, 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 an oak tree, that's a snake. Turns out a little grass snake, probably about, you know, 16 inches long or so. But it, I, I thought how ironic that on the, uh, the morning that uh, I'm going to be talking about temptation and talking about sin, talking about how it took place in the Garden of Eden as well as how Jesus himself was tempted, that I should nearly step on a snake. That's, uh, that is a coincidence. Let's pray before we get into this study. Father, you are gracious to us in a million ways every day. And for all of the ways that we don't see and all of the ways that we do see that graciousness, we lift up to you a thank you and worship and praise for each of them. If only we, we had the, the kind of, of tongue or the kind of voice, Father, to be able to speak the words that we want to speak or to say them in, in a, a beauty that you so deserve, Father. If, if only we could... We could we could find the, the words and the voice to express the impact of, of our lives coming out from under the burden of sin because you love us. When you had every right and you had every opportunity, the power and it would have been the just thing to destroy everything, Father, after we we chose, we chose to not trust You. Betrayed You. Disloyal to You. But You loved us. And, and because of that love, Your Son has come. And Your Son has made propitiation, Father. He has made atonement. He has, in, in compassion and mercy, opened the door up for us, Father, to find our way back into Your embrace. So as we study this Word, Father, we, we pray with all of our heart not to make the same mistakes that we have made in the past when we didn't trust You, when we were not loyal to You, and that You will help us by giving us eyes that see and ears that hear to understand this text and to be moved by it to become better people and to more, be more faithful people and people who choose you beyond and above everything else in this world. So help us, Father, to be discerning of all the words of this text. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And all the church said. You know the name of Oscar Wilde, great playwright, famous uh, liberal personality in England at the turn of the century, last century, He's very famous for a lot of quotes, but there's one in particular that is uh, germane to us this morning. In the dialogue of one of his plays, I think it was Lady Windersley, he said, I can resist almost anything except temptation. Who doesn't know what he's talking about? 
I mean, that's supposed to be humorous, but it speaks a huge truth. Temptation is not a fringe experience, is it? Temptation is a universal experience. And we have to take temptation very seriously because God takes sin very seriously. And this is why the Apostle Paul, many centuries before Oscar Wilde wrote his play, wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 21, so if, or verse 12, if you think that you are standing firm, be careful that you do not, what? Fall. Again and again and again. Now this morning what we're going to do is we're going to think about the three temptations of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, but we are going to see them in the context of John's baptism, which Alan read for us beginning in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 3. And I want us to think of these, the, the, the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist and then immediately being driven into the desert by the Spirit or into the wilderness by the Spirit and then the, 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 three, the, the three temptations that follow as one unit. And we're going to break them up into four areas. The first one is there's an initial decision. Number two, there's an inevitable testing. Number three, there is this important defense that we learn about. And number four, there is the incredible blessing. So, the initial decision, the inevitable testing, the important defense, and the incredible blessing. First, what about this initial decision? Well, since you've been already studying uh, in your Bible classes, uh, as we go through Matthew, the appearance of John the baptizer in the wilderness, we're only going to have a quick review of the story here. Now, as you remember, John appears as the herald of the Messiah, that is, Jesus, and he's getting people through his preaching and through his baptizing of them ready spiritually to receive the kingdom of God, to hear Jesus' preaching with the right kind of heart and the right kind of ear. And John is doing this in fulfillment of the prophecy that had come out of, of Malachi about, uh, about 400 years prior. In Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, Malachi says, God speaking through Malachi, he says, I'm going to send the prophet Elijah, which is just the most famous prophet of all time. And the Jews knew it. They recognized him. I mean, John was, uh, uh, the, Elijah was kind of the rock star of the prophetic world and the prophetic school in the Old Testament. And Malachi is speaking, and, he's, and God is speaking through Malachi, and he says, I'm going to send to you this Elijah again before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, before it comes. Verse 6. What is he going to do? This is what he's going to do. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to their fathers. John was this prophet in the spirit of Elijah. And later on in Matthew chapter 11, when John the Baptist is in prison, Jesus will connect all of these dots just in case anybody misses the Elijah connection with John the Baptist. He says in verse 10 of Matthew 11, This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. That's Malachi chapter 4. Then you drop down to verse 14 of Matthew chapter 11, and he says, And if you're willing to accept this, if you really want to be discerning, if you want to understand it, this John is the Elijah who was to come. John is not only preaching a message of readiness for the coming Messiah, but he's also baptizing people in the River Jordan. And this baptism was very different from the ones that were common in Israel during this period of time. Most of the Jewish baptisms that would take place in what was known in Hebrew as a mikvah. And if you go to the southern end of the Temple Mount, even today, as they begin to, through archaeology to uncover uh, the, the staircases and the holder gates and all of these things, you, you will see these mikvahs or the, the, the mikvahot baths where people would go in quietly and disrobe and they would administer baptism by immersing themselves in this water 
uh, for purification. This is a different kind of baptism that John is administering. John's baptism is a precursor to the baptism that is in the name of Jesus that was begun and practiced by the church in Acts chapter 2. And John is calling people to repent and, 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 and to repent because of the holiness of God. And the holiness to which he was calling them was about kingdom holiness and to be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. Mark's gospel says as much. Look at Mark chapter 1 verse 4 up on the screen. John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the what church? Forgiveness of what? Sins. And this is really, really big. This is a gigantic thing because John, by baptizing people this way, is challenging the religious establishment of his day. And people, are, as Matthew and, and Mark tell us, are coming from all over the place, out into the desert, out into the wilderness, to be baptized by him. And not only are, are people from all over coming, but even the Pharisees and the Sadducees are coming out. And what they represent spiritually and who they have become spiritually is confronted in, in, in not-so-gentle language by John. And then Jesus comes out to be baptized, and John knows that this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he says, you know what, Jesus, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. It shouldn't be the other way around. But Jesus has John baptize him in order to fulfill all what, church? Righteousness. Say that word again. Fulfill all. That's the key. Now, why did he need to be baptized? You know, this little passage, this little encounter in Matthew chapter 3 has given Christians heartburn for centuries because as every Christian believer, every disciple of Jesus knows, Jesus was sinless. Well, let, let's deal with that heartburn just for a little bit and, and think about theologically what's going on here. The, the struggle with this passage comes from taking only one part of this baptism and making it the only purpose of baptism, the forgiveness of sin. John's preaching. Now think about John's preaching. When John is, 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 is thundering forth like the old prophet Elijah and all of the prophets in that line of, of, of faithful speakers of God's Word, and, this, and John's preaching, by the way, is what sets the context for the baptism that he is administering there in the wilderness, there at the Jordan River. John's preaching is about turning your life and choosing God and being faithful in your acceptance of the kingdom and deciding that the Messiah is the one in Jesus. It's about choosing God. John's baptism was about repenting, which means I'm not going to be choosing this way of life, but I'm going to be choosing this way of life. And because of that, that choosing, being baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Now, sinful people, fallen people, people who struggle with sin just like you and I in the first century, through faith, when they chose God, it meant, because of John's preaching, they had to repent. And because they were sinful, they were baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. But at the heart is the choosing of God. So when a sinless Messiah comes, he too also commits himself to God's way by being baptized in order not to be forgiven of sins, but in choosing God, he is fulfilling all what? Righteousness. So Jesus is baptized by John, not because he needs to repent and have his sins forgiven, but because he is choosing God. 
He is identifying with God and committing to doing God's will in all things. Now, let's, let's bring it home a little bit here. Nearly 30 years ago, after preaching a sermon, there was a family who came to the front of, of our auditorium in another place, and they came to the front with their two teenage daughters, and I had never seen the daughters nor had I seen the parents ever before in my life. This family had been loosely connected to our church family through an extended family connection, but they had chosen, uh, for whatever reason, I, I, I don't have a clue, but they had chosen for some reason not to be involved with the church as a community of disciples. Now, I had, I had been with that church, that, that particular church, for about two years, did not have a clue as to who they were, and now they're standing in front wanting their two teenage daughters to be baptized because they were the right age to be baptized. And so when we asked them to study with us in order to make sure everyone was on the same page about what baptism meant, we never saw them ever again. The idea, church, that you can get your sins forgiven one Sunday by being dunked in a baptistry and then live the rest of your life any way that you want is an idea that is foreign to Scripture. And Scripture will not let us treat baptism as if it's some magic act. You know what a magic act is, right? A magic act might look supernatural on the surface, in the act itself, but on the inside, it's a lie and it's empty of power. Scripture teaches that when a person is baptized, they are in faith committing themselves completely, wholly, from tip to toe, and without reserve to God and God's way. And in return, God forgives them of their sins and puts His Holy Spirit in them. That is is biblical baptism. It is about discipleship as much as it is about our sins being forgiven. And the rest of... You know, Jesus is the only human being who ever lived who was baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness. Because He could. But the rest of us who are fallen have to repent and have our sins washed away. But what we have in common is choosing to be a part of God's kingdom and to choose God's way as our way. And we have to get baptism right, not only in our theology, understanding what it does for us in terms of a practical impact of God's grace in our lives, but we also have to get it right in our discipleship. And the reason is what brings us to this second point, the inevitable testing. Now Jesus has come, and He has been baptized by John because He is choosing God. And right after God, uh, Christ chooses to do God's will in all things, He's driven into the desert. Some of your versions may have the wilderness, probably a little bit better of a translation because of the theological connotations of the wilderness. And in verse 1 of chapter 4, Jesus is led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by whom? The devil. Uh, the Bible teaches that an intelligent being is at the source of evil... And, and the temptation for us to go counter the will of God. The Bible also teaches that the, that the world in the sense of the spirit of the age and our human flesh, our fallenness, are also responsible for, for sin, but that there is also this being whose very name means accuser who is at the source of our temptations. Now in this particular passage he is referred to in three different ways. First the devil, then he is known as the tempter, and then he's known finally, he's called by Jesus, Satan. Peter, who saw Jesus in the way that he dealt with 
all the temptations during that three-year period of his ministry describes Satan this way in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring, what? Lion looking for someone to devour. John's revelation will refer to him as a serpent that deceives the nations. Now, quite frankly, when you begin to speak about the devil to most modern people, you see their eyes begin to glaze over a bit because the idea of the supernatural being who's the author of all things evil, it seems so unscientific. It seems primitive. It seems so ancient. Why are we in the modern world of technology and traveling to the moon, why do we even believe in somebody like, like the devil? Well, let me ask you this. Would it not be to the devil's advantage to convince the world that he doesn't exist. Think about the military. Every military force in the world tries to develop stealth technology, you know, applications of that stealth technology in order to make them undetectable until they strike. And then when they do, it's too late. Not only does the Bible teach that temptation has a source, the devil but there's also a strategy to what the devil does. Now, it's important for us to know that each of us face a personalized, tailor-made temptation just for us. Each temptation we face is made up either of our strengths or our weaknesses. The ultimate design of each temptation is to move you away from God functionally. It's tailor-made, it involves either your strengths or your weaknesses. And as a goal, it is a temptation to, or an act that you will, you will do to move you away from God functionally in your faith. Now, how does Satan do this in Matthew chapter 4? Matthew tells us that the Spirit of God leads Jesus into the desert for 40 days without food. And the first temptation Satan presents Jesus with has to do with trust. God has led him into the wilderness... So will Jesus trust God to take care of him and to lead him out? Or will Jesus have to rely on his own power, the making of these stones into bread, in order to fulfill some need that God hasn't done? Will he trust God? And then the second temptation involves the devil taking Jesus to the highest point of the temple, which is sometimes debated in the commentaries whether or not it's a point on the wall which was actually higher than the temple itself. And if he jumped from there, he would be jumping down in the middle of Commerce Street in, in Jerusalem where all the markets were, or whether or not he took him to the highest place of the temple itself. It doesn't matter because the idea is, is, is Jesus going to be able to jump off of this thing the quote is from Psalm 91 that Satan uses against him that the angels are going to keep you from even you know, turning an ankle when you hit the ground. Now the temptation there is, is he going to do things God's way? It has to do with glory. There is one way, God's way, in which Jesus is going to be exalted and glorified and that's going to be via the cross and the resurrection. Or can he do it in a different kind of way because of his knowledge base that he has and, and, and his intellectual base that he has, and knowing that if everybody and anybody saw him leap off of the highest point of the temple, the angels coming and supporting him so he's not hurt, would that not be in some way exalting himself and getting the praise and the glory of the people? They would see it, this miracle, and give him glory. The temptation has to do with whether or not he is going to trust God. 
The third temptation involves seeing all the kingdoms of the world from a high mountain. And Satan's saying that all of these great kingdoms and their riches and all of their people and all of their lands could be Jesus's if only Jesus will bow down and worship him. And again, the temptation is one of lordship. Who is really the Lord of our life? Who is really going to be God in Jesus' life? Now you see where this baptism where he is choosing God to fulfill all righteousness comes into play and is the very thing being tempted here? In his baptism, he is going to fulfill all righteousness. He is choosing God. Satan is saying, you choose me, I'll give you all of this and you won't have to go to the cross. Do you see how Jesus, in facing every one of these temptations, is facing all the temptations? Do I trust God to be faithful and to come through? Will I, will I live my entire life according to the will of God? Will I put God at the center of my worship? So how do you remain faithful to God in the midst of it? This is where we see the important defense. Three things. Number one, do like Jesus did. Resist the devil. Jesus does something that a lot of us don't do, and that is to resist Satan. And two people who saw this up close was Jesus' brother James and one of his closest friends, Peter. James chapter 4, verse 7, Submit yourselves then to God, that is, choose God, then resist the devil and he will flee from you. And after referring to Satan as a lion, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 9, Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. You know what a lot of us have to do to really begin to deal with temptation in our life? is get in the fight. Quite frankly, it's that simple. Some of us just have to choose, you know what, I am going to resist Satan. But there's a second thing right on the heels of that, and it's rely on the power of the Spirit. While you need to get into the fight, you cannot win on your own power. Jesus was guided and empowered by the Spirit in His temptations. He was never alone in His struggle, even at the most difficult moments. And this is key, because Satan wants us to think that in the middle of our temptation, that God has abandoned us. That's key. That in the middle of this temptation, it's actually Satan who is closer to us than God. That's the temptation, which brings us back to the, to the baptism where you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul helps us to understand one of the reasons that you receive that Holy Spirit inside of you. He says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, For this reason I kneel before the Father from, it, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with what? With power through his spirit in your inner being you got to resist satan you rely on the power of the spirit and then number three as jesus did you need to know the word of god each time jesus was tempted what did he do quoted scripture and where did he quote it from deuteronomy chapter eight and chapter six all three times i mean how many of us read our bibles and actually when we get to leviticus or we get to deuteronomy you know, we think right here is where spiritual power is found in order to thwart the devil's schemes against us. He quoted from Deuteronomy three times. Is the Word of God a part of your strategy where you take your stand against temptation? And then the last thing, the incredible blessing. You know, the first time humans encountered Satan, it went very badly. Rather than trusting God, they chose to eat when they should have rejected what was offered to them. 
And rather than obey God's will to stay away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they saw in it an alternative path to happiness. And rather than letting God be God, they chose to try and turn themselves into God. But then the second Adam, Jesus encounters Satan and he does not eat, but he trusts the Word of God. And he does not choose an alternative path to glory, but commits himself to God's plan. And he will not bow down to Satan, but he worships God and God alone. But instead of that turning Jesus into a moralist or an elitist that separates him from us, he becomes our sympathizing priest. And the Hebrew writer says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too, Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Verse 17, for this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able, therefore, to help those who are being tempted. And then a couple of chapters later, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. You know, one thing that we did not talk about at the baptism was right after Jesus is baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness, there is this voice that comes out of heaven. In Hebrew, it's known as the bat kol, the daughter's voice or the little voice from heaven. Another way of saying an echo. We believe that it was the voice of God himself coming through the heavens and saying, this is my son in whom I'm pleased. The reason I think that Matthew put it there was for us to think very carefully about what it means to reject Jesus. If we accept the one who is pleasing to God, it means salvation, and it means blessing, and it means the gift of the Holy Spirit, and it means eternal life, and it means a million different blessings every day. But to reject the one on whom, Jesus, uh, on whom God's voice has spoken and said, as the Spirit lighted on him as a dove, this is my son in whom I'm pleased. To reject the one that is pleasing to God has its ramifications too. And as we go through the book of Matthew, what you begin to see is that as Jesus speaks about those that trust in themselves or those that trust in other kinds of relationships or those that are trying to find you know, salvation or you know, whether they're self-righteous or they're looking for it in some other kind of a, a, a works legalist, legalism scheme, it doesn't work, but it leads to damnation, it leads to condemnation, and it leads to e e e eternal torment. But to choose the one that God is pleased with leads to eternal life. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. We're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front. Today is the day to accept the one that God says is pleasing to me, my son. Today is the day to accept him. Today is the day to be baptized in his name.
in order for your sins to be forgiven, in order to receive that gift of the Holy Spirit, in order to live eternally with God and with all of the saints forever and ever. If that describes you this morning, come down and talk to the shepherds as we stand and sing together. Hear the sweet voice of Jesus say, Come unto me, I am the way. Hark in the loving call, obey. Come for He loves you so. Only a step, only a step. Come for He bled for you and died. He's the same loving Savior yet. Jesus the crucified Open for you the pearly gates Loved ones for you Now watch and wait Terrible thought To cry too late Jesus I come to thee only a step, only a step. Come for He bled for you and died. He's the same loving Savior yet. Jesus the crucified. Please be seated. In a couple of minutes, we're going to get to witness Carter Tulpo being baptized. He is the son of Nathan and Andrea Bolton. Uh, as you know, Nathan is in the military. They're getting ready to be reassigned elsewhere this summer. We're going to be very sad to see the Boltons move, but we rejoice with them this morning to see Carter baptized and to find his eternal salvation in Jesus. We also want to welcome to our church family Brian, Melissa, Garrett, and Jesse, and Leanna Smith, who would like to place membership with us. Can we have you guys stand, please? right here. Welcome. Our shepherds are going to spend a, a longer season of prayer over these requests in their conference room, and they're going to be going to that conference room during the singing of the next song. They would love for you to join them if you would like, to share with them more details, some of the prayer requests, or if you didn't have an opportunity to share one through a card, you can do so personally with them in their conference room, and you can be dismissed as well during the singing of the next song. Laura King is asking us to remember her brother, Danny Lamp, in our prayers. The heart pump surgery this week was successful. However, he remains in critical condition. Please continue praying for, for my brother, Danny. James Tart, a thanksgiving for the things that are happening in his life, especially the eye surgery that he had last week. It was a success, and he has been healing very quickly. So we rejoice with James about that. Uh, Daryl Graham Jr. Um, is asking us to, uh, to pray for him uh, as you know, he was supposed to be uh, uh, dismissed from Bamsey and heading back to Mississippi a couple of weeks ago, but there was another mass found connected to his brain, which is involving some surgery. Uh, things have gotten a little bit complicated right now and how that's all going to be dealt with. And, and Daryl is asking us to pray for him that he will have strength and patience and the, the spiritual fortitude to be able to deal with all of the, the, the turns and, and the curves in this process of finding, finding medical treatment for him. Ron and Jeannie Garner, for Ron Garner, he needs prayers for his strength and for guidance during a cancer treatment uh, that's going to begin uh, uh, soon at MD Anderson. 
Brenda Harper for Anna Caballer. Special prayers for Anna that her strength and courage be strong as she goes through her cancer treatment. Carla Ridings for her mother, Nola Johnson. Please pray for Nola and our family. She is having complications with Alzheimer. She's not doing very well at all. Samuel Allen for George Switzer and his wife. His wife suffered some kind of heart problem. They are my great uncle and great aunt. Laura Hill for a step-grandmother, Virginia Mann. On Friday morning, she fell and broke her shoulder, arm, and hip. Saturday morning, she had a hip replacement. Please pray for a quick recovery. And then Catherine Ransleben would like for us to remember Jacob Collier in our prayers right now as he's going through some personal struggles as well. These are the prayer requests. In a minute, we will witness the uh, the baptism.